Hi everybody, it's Jean Nathan, and um, today we're coming to you as you are probably sitting there working hard on your, um, should I stop, go, okay, full stop. Hi everybody, this is Jean Nathan, it's Crosstown Conversations, and it is the day before Thanksgiving, and um, as you are hearing me, I am actually off to visit my family up on the East Coast, something we don't do every year, but um, this year for various reasons, we're headed up to uh, the East Coast to have our Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so I'm going to share with you a little later in the show um, a couple new ideas for your Thanksgiving uh, dinner as you are probably uh, sitting there at your kitchen table um, preparing your stuffing and your veggies and your pies and so forth. Hopefully some of you have the luxury of being able to hang out at home and do that and not have to do it tonight or in the morning. Um, but um, we're also going to uh, have some folks on to talk about uh, some interesting issues. And I've got two, you know, landscape architects. So I, I've, I make the joke that uh, landscape architects used to be thought of as um really just gardeners, but in fact, lately, they have gotten very much involved in this whole ecological universe that we are so focused on now as we try to figure out what we're going to do about global warming and all those good things. So we are, um, or, you know, various kinds of climate change and coastal erosion, whatever. So we're having to really think harder about that garden and that, and, and do we, do we put down concrete? Do we put down lawn or do we do um, things that will absorb water around our house so that maybe we won't have as much flooding and those kind of things. So landscape architects are thinking about that too and talking about it. So we're going to talk to two of them who are going to um, share some, some ideas with us. So that's coming up just now. My name is Jennifer Dowdell. I'm a landscape ecological planner at Biohabitats and we are located or headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, but we have smaller offices around the country as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Duggan, a native New Orleanian, but a landscape architect with studio. Hold on. That happens every so often. Anyway. You were hearing it? Yeah. And you think it's going to continue to happen? Should we go back over there? I can always stop it and start it. So, um, 
So I'm sorry, do that again. That's right. Up. Andrew Duggan, I'm a native New Orleanian, but um, I'm a landscape architect with studio outside in Dallas. And we okay. do park planning, we work with uh, consultants such as Biohabitat Habitat to integrate the science into our design. So I, I think that, um, you know, parks have always been both a place of refuge from the urban grid on the one hand, but also um, offering opportunities to learn about nature and um, about um, trends in nature. And so right now we have a pretty remarkable trend going on in terms of the impact of not just global um, warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it, but um, and also just uh, kind of an evolution of our delta in, in this case. So uh, give me some perspective on what you've done in other parks and, and what you think we could be doing in Louisiana that would help people understand the forces of nature. Sure. Well, in a case of a project that Andrew and I worked on together at Galveston Island State Park in Galveston, Texas, we actually um, used science to inform design by, by modeling um, the effects of climate change on the landscape, looking at sea level rise, how that was going to change um, the habitats and where the habitats are located on that site, and then allow that to inform how we look at design and planning for a 50-year time frame to preserve what we can and allow for support of ecological function, even as we continue to interweave the experience of, of the visitors into the site. And Andrew can talk more about the design elements that we considered as we looked at that mm -hmm. park. But I think the other advantage and the other gift that we have in parks, generally speaking, is that these are beyond being places of learning and refuge and respite, um, there are also opportunities we have to preserve natural systems or restore them if for some reason other things can't be done on site because of sea level rise or other flooding issues. It, it is the ideal location to really allow for ecology to return, like an active ecosystem to return to a site. Um, but I don't know if Adam, uh, Andrew wants to speak more. I mean, in the case of Galveston Island State Park, I think we were inspired by sort of strength through fragility almost, in the fact that this delicate barrier island environment had been set up originally as a park to kind of buttress itself and fight Mother Nature. But Hurricane Ike showed that that strategy just did not work, a complete devastation of the entire state park. So as a driving concept built on a foundation of science and built on very complicated modeling of different situations and scenarios, we were able to put forth a plan that was resilient and to anticipate change, embrace it, and work with it rather than fighting it and preventing Mother Nature so to take its course. So what does that look like? Well, for the, this state park, it happened in a, a number of different um, odd uh, situations that um, were you know, one particular example was that, you know, vertical elements became sort of this yardstick of natural phenomenon, of flooding, of storm event, high water marks, of other things like that. That's one simple option. But in a more, um, uh, more, more complicated example was actually the layout of some of the 
beach camping on the site itself that had been the main economic driver of the site for so many years. Some people might ask, well, should we even put camping on the beach? But through our public engagement and understanding, you know, this is a time-honored tradition of families from all across Texas, and they have a connection to this place, and they want to come back to it. So to preserve that experience, um, we set up the camping on a much compressed, where it had been spread across the entire beach, like butter almost, and put it in a tighter spot to allow for the turtles to come back and to allow for these other natural beach dune systems to regenerate themselves. But then as the beach were to come in, the lines of the campsites are set up that as, as the, uh, the dunes move, we can clip off a couple of campsites over time to allow for that system to move with the landscape rather than fight for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Why do you feel this is so important right now? What, what, what is, give me a feeling for context in terms of what's happening as you see it as landscape architects that, um, that, that creates the, the drive for making these kinds of adjustments or adaptations. Well, I think it uh, has, you know, people have a connection to these places, right? They're dynamic, they're changing, and it is timely because we have this big global phenomenon of global warming that's occurring that is kind of hard to comprehend. But when it's expressed and understood on the local level at a park site or some other open space that people are able to see it in action, then they can hopefully um, be able to appreciate it more and um, be able to realize that their their decisions that they make in their in their daily lives are affecting this bigger phenomenon in some way. When you have this spot that you can kind of see it over mm -hmm. time. And I would add that it is these these natural systems that are actually our first line of defense uh, uh, to help combat sort of the the greater implications that climate change and sea level rise, which includes um, a greater frequency of large storms, the greater um, challenge of flooding coming inland, these natural systems, by their very nature, when they're functioning at their highest level, can help um, keep some of those effects from coming inland, from making the larger sort of flooding events possible. And so we, we can really look at them in their natural form as um, an element in the landscape that we can preserve, enhance, restore, uh, to allow for that natural system to provide the support it can. So wetlands can help hold on to water and can help buffer the effects of that water moving inland if they're a functioning system. And, and so we can restore those wetlands in some of these areas integrated with program to allow for that natural system to function as it can and should. There are a couple of barriers that we've found at Galveston Island that was preventing some folks from engaging in these type of environments. One was, um, you know, having the paraphernalia that it takes to have a meaningful experience in the outdoor environment. You know, if you're trying to have uh, offer opportunities for recreation for all Texans, then how, you know, and not everybody has an RV. That's a very expensive thing that the cross-section of the, of the community does not have. Uh, how can you provide training? How can you have kayaks and tents and things like that that are very affordable or free to use for folks to come out there? So um, that's one aspect. And, you know, the other piece is just on these, certainly on these barrier islands, elevation means everything. And having a just a slight elevation to be able to get out and see the tapestry of the habitat 
from the beach all the way inland to the marsh and other wetlands. Providing that perspective was done in a, a very innovative and artful way at Galveston State Park. How so? The specific siting of the Discovery Center was put uh, to the inland of the property rather than on the beach itself. You know, previously the old visitor center was wiped away by Hurricane Ike. And uh, oddly enough, the interior of the property had this artificially contrived mound that was a remnant of a old um, amphitheater that was mm -hmm. done as a sort of this song and dance venue, you know, years ago. It had failed, no doubt, because of mosquitoes and humidity and everything else out there mm -hmm. in the summer. But uh, they had this mound of 20 feet high. Well, we decided to decidedly not put the Discovery Center on that mound because it was the only one on the whole island. If we're going to exhibit best practices for park planning, then we can't take advantage of this thing that nobody else has. So we put the visitor center at that intersection of land and water, an area of the site that was sinking, that was being reclaimed by part of the bay. It was dry now, but will be wet. It has to be up on stilts to allow for the storm surge and things of that nature. But we use that mound as that arrival ramp to get up to that higher elevation. And you emerge through the discovery center 20 feet in the air to look the entire cross section of the island from the bay to the beach. And you see that tapestry of all these delicate strand prairie yes, habitats. Spectacular. And people have this amazing realization that here we are on this barrier island that is so fragile, but now its 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 function and its experience is that much deeper. And I assume you have interpretive materials on site also to absolutely for people to read and understand better, even videos or well the uh, you know when the discovery center is, is built and it's not built yet but when it does happen there's a whole interpretive plan where every trail has a story and a chapter be told mm -hmm. with destinations that are intentionally intentionally placed in the landscape mm -hmm. and in those delicate habitat pieces so that your journey starts at that discovery center but we call it the transect trail that actually went all the way from Beta Beach including a bridge over the highway to uh, to, to um, connect make those connections yeah, and we had, as part of the planning process, chosen representatives. Hold it, hold it. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. As part of the planning process, we had also chosen representative species, wildlife species, that are specifically using different habitats on site. And so I think part of the interpretation will also be to highlight some of those species, talk about the uses that they have in the habitats, because there's loads of migratory birds who are flying through the site, using it for food or respite. Um, really interesting, there's the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle on the on the beach side, nesting right on the beach, and then there's lots of birds like the piping plover, a, a, a shrimp species, the oysters. We went from water all the way into the land mm -hmm. to really understand each of those species needs, and they were representative of a much broader guild of species that would sort of be acting in concert and, and using these spaces at the same time. Mm -hmm. So really understanding the broad swath of animals that are also part of this community. So um, Louisiana is not Texas, and one of our challenges is um, lack of finance uh, opportunities. So uh, give me some ideas about um, how you all have in various projects, not just Texas, and how you have found uh, funding to um, do these, to implement your plans. I know that's not your primary function. Your primary function is to plan, but you have to be mindful of, of oh, the, yeah, uh, of yeah. 
Well, funding's always a tough uh, part of the puzzle to pull together, and I certainly, if it's the state legislature, if it's local governments, if it's grants and foundations, you know, certainly there are um, different avenues to, to get to that. But I think that it's important to have a strong foundation of engagement at the public level, so that groundswell of um, interest and support can kind of tap the legislature and tap those public agencies mm -hmm. to try to push that forward to be a priority. That's what it's going to take to do that. And mm -hmm. um, do that can be managed in a number of different ways. Uh, in some projects we've done very extensive public engagement across multiple cities just to deal with one particular project and that mm -hmm. spreads that groundswell hopefully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if there are environmental um, issues and perhaps regulations that one must meet in, in going forward with certain designs or plans. Um, one can also look at perhaps some federal funding sources. We work on a lot of projects that have to do with water, clean water, and clean water regulations in the Chesapeake Bay region in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and so there's the Chesapeake Bay Trust and organizations like that that are at the local level. And then there are grants with the National Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA and other federal institutions that might also have some grant funding available when there's a restoration piece or a public engagement piece. There's a lot more in the federal funding that is linking the public experience and the benefits to the public, especially in underserved communities and, um, and environmental justice and, and serving the, a greater need in a community uh, where there might be some other types of funding. So you have to start to work with a client or with a community to stitch together perhaps yeah. a number of funding sources. Sure. But public agencies is a minefield too sometimes because sometimes just the way that regulations or their internal rules work, we've encountered situations where one group might fund one thing but it might be counteracted. Another group might have a rule or a law that is kind of counter to that. Yeah. And that has, you know, been a hiccup in the process sometimes to because it you think you have it and then well this other group says we can. That if we could get everybody on the same page working towards a common goal, we'll have mm -hmm. more success. And that's your job. Yeah. <laughs> um uh give me kind of just a um a bullet list of some of the most innovative projects you know of, whether you've done them or not, around the country uh, to deal with um, the idea of trying to put state parks to work, or uh, not just state parks, but public land to work in um, serving all the purposes we've been talking about, preservation as well as informing the public and uh, addressing their recreational and, and uh, respite interests and so on. Just. What are some of the most interesting and innovative ideas you know about out there? And I can edit. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm not sure I've got a good list of bullet points on that one. All right. Well, uh, let's leave that for you to send something to me. Okay. 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 And and yeah. also, um, I'm gonna ask you to send me some of your funding ideas as well because that's certainly something that we're very interested in. We have some uh, funding that we're putting together on projects here in Louisiana that we've been going after with our water projects and mm -hmm. um, and planning, nice. but uh, there's always more. Closing thoughts that uh, you want to share with us? Any kind of... Well, I think that um, what we see in all of our environmental education work and keeps us passionate about the opportunity is the chance to impact 
folks on a multi-generational level because it's the parents and grandparents that maybe have an original connection to a place and then you have kids out there and the opportunity for them to get unplugged and to appreciate the natural environment. If we let that slip away because we're not being good stewards of these habitats, then those future generations are not going to have that connection to that piece of land or piece of water for that matter that because it's not there. And what a loss that will be. And there is, I think there is just endless amounts of inspiration we can take from natural systems and the way they form over hundreds and thousands and millions of years. and. And for us to just step back for a moment and remember that there's such complexity there and there's such amazing volume of information we can gain from these natural systems. And, and they're just such special places. And, and I think we are seeing a shift in the way that we perceive landscapes from maybe a more traditional kind of formal landscape appreciation in parks to something that involves more of the kind of messy, what one considers a messy landscape, but it is um, a native of landscape and, and this opportunity to kind of find the wonder in that mystery and really celebrate that because there's just so much there to be exp excited by and inspired by. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh, that was terrific, really interesting. And this whole session, I've been going to some of them, and it's really been rewarding to hear what landscape architects are thinking about. And I think a lot of us in the old days used to think of landscape architects as one step above gardeners. And you've become so much more as we deal with these ecological issues. So mm -hmm. I know that you're broadening your horizons in many ways as well. Thank sure. you very much, both Thank of you. you. Thank you. Okay. So uh, we also have with us today um, a very interesting gentleman, Kevin O'Brien, who is the director of um, the Or O'Keefe Museum in Biloxi. Now, I know a lot of you have not been to this museum and don't even know it's there. I guarantee you that if you go, you will be blown away. First of all, the architecture is utterly amazing. It is by a, a guy named Frank Gehry, who's one of the world's most innovative and artistic and really terrific um, architects. And so it's it's extraordinary looking. It's these silver kind of urn-shaped, they call them pods, uh, individual units. So it's actually a series of smaller buildings in which they have art exhibits. and. Opening um, just now, just before this show airs, is a show of um, ceramics by young contemporary artists that I think you would find intriguing, and also um, a show of the work of Willie White, who is an artist who was born in Mississippi but lived in New Orleans and showed his work um, on um, O.C. Haley Boulevard, then Dryads, for a long time. He used to hang it up on a clothesline and people would pass by and see it, and he would sell it for not very much at all. And he's become more and more recognized for work that is abstract on the one hand, figurative, but very um, just really original and quite beautiful. And um, we've talked about him before because we had a show of his work here in New Orleans at the Creative Alliance of New Orleans's Creative Space at the Myrtle Banks Building on O.C. Haley Boulevard. But now the show has traveled, which is a very important thing and very exciting for us that 
it, it is traveling to the Or O'Keefe Museum in Biloxi. So Google Or O'Keefe Museum and you'll get the hours and things like that. But definitely think about getting out there. So Kevin O'Brien, who's the director, is going to talk with us now about the show. And then immediately following him, you're going to hear from Alan Chen, who is a young ceramic sculptor. He's based here in, the, in, in our region. He's teaching in Mississippi. I think he's originally... I don't want to say it's on the on the in the in, in the interview, so he'll he'll mention it. But I know he's from um, uh, Asia, so um, I hope you enjoy that. First of all, let me have your name and title. Kevin O'Brien, Executive Director, Oro Keefe Museum of Art, Biloxi, Mississippi. So, Kevin, um, the place looks great. Thank I mean, you. absolutely sensational. Um, your contemporary ceramics show that is opening this week mm -hmm. um, looks gorgeous. The, the installation of the Willie Whites uh, that came from the show that we had in New Orleans looks great. I'm just thrilled. Uh, tell me about the inspiration behind this current show and then I want to talk a little bit about the um, Oro Keefe Museum. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the Willie White Show, we're very, very excited about. We have a, a, a very important part of our museum here where we dedicate things to the uh, celebrating African-American culture and art. And so we really look out to uh, African-American artists. In fact, this gallery space is dedicated to African-American artists. So we're looking for fantastic artists along those lines, and we've had quite a few. And uh, Willie White is just really an interesting guy. He's, uh, he didn't have any formal art training, and I think uh, he went through the third grade, and I heard things where he was, you know, he was living in New Orleans on Dryad Street, and he went to the French Quarter, and he saw these other artists doing the work, and I'm sure he thought to himself, hey, I can do that. But, uh, you know, he really never pushed his work during his lifetime. I heard he would sell things for $3 a piece, things like that, and he probably got his poster board from K&B, and and uh, he did a lot of things with markers and things like that. But I was really mostly intrigued with him in that uh, it's almost figurative art in terms of uh, he's got uh, dinosaurs, animals. I know he was really obsessed with the Apollo, uh, or excuse me, the Challenger disaster, things like that. So these are all sort of uh, very, very personal narratives that are in these pieces. And they all relate to each other. They're, they're um, each piece, they have very, very similar things. But bold colors, and uh, it's very, very striking. It is, and, and what's so interesting about it is that um, as an untrained artist, it's not uh, typical to see abstract work. Yeah, and I think, you know, purposely he's doing it abstracted, and uh, it's, it's they, they all follow a very, very, I guess you could say a Western culture in terms of the way that they're built, and and uh, in, in terms of, you know, I look at painting and, and uh, drawing and things like that. It has that very, very traditional uh, look to it in terms of, you know, how you weight a painting, how you have uh, in and out going there as, as far as, uh, you know, I, some of them almost have a, a European touch where, you know, you've got your darker colors at the very bottom so that they actually come at you. And then you have other colors where you go back into space. So I see the objects, but you also have an object and you have a foreground and a background. So even though they're two-dimensional pieces, you really get that sense of uh, uh, three dimensions where you're going in and out. I wonder to what extent he was conscious of that. 
Um, I always wonder about that with artists. I think sometimes people, they, they overthink all of that stuff. I think in terms of somebody like Van Gogh, where they think that he could only paint that way because uh, he was having mental illness and things like that. And I would just say, no, the guy could just paint. And I think that's probably the same thing about Willie here. It's, you can tell that he was driven to do these things. And, and I, I think he probably just did it and, and worked out things as opposed to try to overthink them and think that, uh, you know, I've got to put red here, I've got to put black here. It's just something you can see that it just came right out of him. Well, that's really so true. Uh, many artists will tell you that when they are making work, they feel almost as if they're not really in control because they're doing things that they are not thinking out in advance. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, there are some artists, though, that are very, very methodical, but I think these are really paintings to me. I know he's using flare tip and things like that, but I think you could tell as he was working, these things evolved as he, as he did them. Not so much in terms of with some artists where they'll predict things very much and, and measure things out and uh, sort of uh, understand what they're going to get before they even get started. So these are very, very spontaneous pieces, and um, um, they have a, a real raw quality to them. That, that They're very, very fresh when you see them. And I don't think you could really get uh, bored or by seeing these kind of things. They're just very, very exciting. They're very, very animated. Yeah, and uh, there's really sort of different um, genres or phases of the work. So some of them that have these um, primitive imaginative creatures. It's not clear what they are. They're sort of dragon-like, but sometimes they have wings. So are they sort of giant dragonflies, or are they critters that walk on the ground and also have wings? I mean, they're, I, I guess the word is anthropomorphic, not really knowing what that means, but I, I guess it's kind of like that. And then some of the other things that have, um, you know, uh, almost a landscape quality to them and, and, and these fruit-like objects that are in them. Uh, and then you get to these incredibly, totally abstract pieces where, I mean, this, this one I'm looking at right now that has two strips of blue along the side, a big uh, section of brown, and then uh, on the bottom, a big section of green on top, and then a little section of brown on the top. What's going on there? It's almost like a Matisse window or a Diebenkorn kind of thing in terms of where you're using rectangles. And, and even though it's abstract, you still get the feeling that it is something. And, and again, that's what I see about all of his pieces. Um, there are objects that are something. You know, there's a, and usually the objects are the things that pop out in the foreground. But the, the background itself is very, very important in terms of pushing those pieces out uh, so that you can see them. He really understands how to manipulate color. And um, I think he knows that you use a, a little bit of a bright color if you want to push it back, or if you're juxtaposing it to other colors, you, you can make it go in and out. So it's very, very, uh, on an intuitive basis, very, very sophisticated work. So with this work and with other work that you've shown here of African-American artists, um, what are you trying to, to do? What are you trying to say? Well, I'm trying to uh, say that there's a whole uh, group of artists that are, aren't really getting their due in terms of being able to show their work. And, and uh, uh, African-American culture here, especially on the Gulf Coast, uh, it's thriving. It's a wonderful thing. And um, we want to make sure that artists have an opportunity to 
make their work exposed to the public and also for people to understand um, how important it is for these artists to be able to, to reach the public. Um, I think a lot of these artists that we know, um, a lot of people don't know about them yet. Yeah, and um, I know that uh, Jerry O'Keefe, who uh, really is one of the founders of this museum, the, the Oro O'Keefe Museum, um, was pretty determined to have an African-American museum. I mean, he basically, as I recall, said he would not support this project unless there was an African-American museum. What was all that all about? Well, he was a very, very special guy. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that sometimes when I'm reaching out to African-American artists and they hear that we're going to be showing their ex exhibition in a gallery of African-American art, some of their initial reactions are, hey, I'm an artist. What's with this African-American stuff? Why are you labeling it? And usually I have to explain how this all happened. Jerry O'Keefe was a very, very unusual person in this area. He was a Democrat, he was a Catholic, he was a liberal, and he was a staunch supporter of civil rights. And he just passed away, he was 93, so you have to take it in context of, uh, from how he grew up and he saw civil rights. And he didn't necessarily see it as um, being something um, I don't want to say it negative or anything like that about labeling artists. He wanted to champion and uh, expose African-American arts and, and, and really celebrate that. That's what he was about. You know, he had all sorts of things going on. He was a guy that in the 70s, when he was a mayor here in Biloxi, the Ku Klux Klan was coming here to walk and uh, on the streets and he stopped them. They threatened them and he said, come on, you know, I'll, I'll take you on. But uh, he was truly a man that um, uh, really didn't discriminate against anybody. He really saw everybody as being an equal. And he saw this as a means where he felt he had to uh, have a, a venue for African-American artists to, to show here because it wasn't happening. And remember, Mr. O'Keefe, uh, when he went through the whole civil rights thing, he went through it in the 60s and the 70s. So calling somebody well, an African-American artist, yeah, yeah. that that was not uh, a, a, a usual thing. So um, he really, really was a positive person about that. And that's why we have the Gallery of African-American Art. And this actually was opened well before the, um, I know there's a collection in Atlanta. And now, of course, we have the African-American Museum in Washington, DC, which took, what I understand, 30 years to accomplish. But this preceded it. Yes, it did. And, and, and again, it was Mr. O'Keefe's uh, vision for, for this particular place. You know, there are certain things that he looked at at this museum. He wanted to look at contemporary art. Of course, uh, our mainstay is George Orr, a very, very famous uh, art artist that's just getting national recognition, and African-American culture and art. Those were the three main things that he was all about with this particular thing. Oh, yeah, Frank Gehry. I forgot about him. Uh, we have a great Frank Gehry facility here, and... Uh, it really works well with uh, the mission of the organization. So it's, it's really pretty amazing that um, Jerry embraced the work of, of, of uh, George Orr to begin with, because George Orr's pottery, this is not your flea market um, you know, cup. This is very abstract also. Um, some people say he was one of the first American abstract artists because his work was made 
in the late 1800s and turn of the century. And that was actually before the abstract movement begins. Yeah, he really is a tremendous uh, artist. And one of the things that got me, you know, I, I, a lot of people, they look at his work now and they say, oh, I've seen that stuff. Well, you got to think, no, you're talking 1890s, you know, early 1900s. And the other thing, too, he was a great colorist. I don't think people realize this. But sometimes when you go into museums, you know, people keep the lights really dark and all this kind of stuff. And, and those are circumstances where you don't really see the brilliance of George Orr when he's got his uh, glazes on there. They're meant to be seen in sunlight and uh, high intensity light. And what happens is these pieces, they just uh, change uh, amazingly with uh, these bright colors that you normally don't see. And yeah, he was almost like, to me, a, a Willem de Kooning in terms of the kind of colors and glazes he did. He was really ahead of his time. Um, I think in the early 1900s, he was uh, trying to meet with people on the East Coast with uh, the uh, arts and crafts movement, and they just didn't get him. They didn't understand uh, who this guy was. And, and again, he was, uh, he was an abstract artist. And of course, now people are finally realizing how important he is. He called himself the greatest potter in the world. Well, why not? Um, <laughs> um, he was well, kind he of, was at the time. He really was. Yeah, I, I don't. Who, who would you say from from the first half of the 20th century, working in ceramic, uh, in the ceramic medium, was better? Nobody. Not until uh, somebody like Peter Volkus or somebody coming yeah, along. Yeah, And the then 70s. you're talking about yeah, the 1970s and all that. So he was just way ahead of his time. Yeah. And, um, it's, Sometimes uh, that's not the best thing in the world to be ahead of your time because people are not ready for what you do. There's a wonderful commercial running on television right now with this funny looking feathery critter and it says, change can be to people ugly and scary and, and, and um, a challenge. And then by the end of the commercial, this peculiar Critter is welcomed, you know. It was an ad for I don't know what an insurance company or something, but mm -hmm. um, and I always think of the artists that I know who uh, are not accepted yet. Well, George Orr was kind of an interesting guy because uh, he actually said, uh, you know, uh, before he passed away, I am going to be famous, and and sometimes that's kind of funny to me because I lot, I meet lots of artists that uh, say I'm going to be famous, and I tell myself, sure you are. But uh, he really had a, a good idea of what was going to be happening to him. Um, at a certain point of his work away, and he told his family, I don't want you to be putting this stuff out for another 50 years until after I pass away. And partial circumstance, partial just artistry on his part, uh, he really came into his own, really in the early 70s and 80s. And it's kind of the same for Willie White, the artist whose work is now on view. I mean, he, he literally hung them from a clothesline on his porch on Dryad Street in Central City. And, um, you know, not, not that many people paid any attention. It happens that, you know, Bob Tan and, and, and myself and, and, some, and, and a few others in the city actually did pay attention and collected it. And um, now it gets to be on the walls of museums. And I'm really sorry that Willie's not here to see it. Well, I, I hope if uh, there's uh, some way that he can appreciate it, I, I hope he enjoys the show. It's a fantastic show, and, and again, it's a tribute to somebody who, uh, through their lifetime, they did amazing artwork. And you know the nice thing about seeing this artwork? This is Willie White. He is alive. This all came out of him, and he physically manifested these things. So to me, it's more than just a picture. It's the embodiment of Willie White. On that note,
thank you very much, Kevin, for spending a few minutes with me here in the uh, gallery on the Gulf Coast. And everybody, you just absolutely have to come and see the museum itself. The architecture is spectacular. Frank Gehry is one of the most, uh, again, revolutionary uh, artists, architects in the world. And the work of Willie White is f phenomenal. And, and, and to see the pots of George Orr, you've got so many new ones out now that are just incredible. It's, it's right, literally, on Highway 90, on the beach, facing the water, just past Beau Rivage, right? Right, past all of those casinos. You can't miss it. We've got these giant silver pods out front. Yeah, they're kind of odd-shaped, almost urn-shaped in a way, contemporary urn-shaped buildings. So thank you very much, Kevin O'Brien. Thank you, Jean. My name is Alan Chen. I am an assistant professor of art at uh, the University of Miss Southern Mississippi. Okay, and an artist. Uh, yes, I work with <laughs> ceramics. So um, tell me just a little bit about your work. It's really very rich. Uh, it's, I guess, uh, would the word be somewhat, um, it's abstract, but it also, it's sculptural, it's, it's not utilitarian, yes. and it's also, uh, it has references to nature in it, it seems to me, but you'll have to tell me about it. Oh, absolutely. I wish you could just keep going because, you know, you're, you're, you're describing, I'm nodding my head the whole time. Um, yeah, they reference nature, they reference, um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so listen to a lot of science and a lot of um, just uh, great ideas out there. And they sort of just kind of, like ideas, they go, they filter through you and then comes out, you know, in the wee hours in the middle of the night when you're working, so. Well, tell me about the work. Yes. Um, well, so it's, it's, a, it's an installation, and uh, the first time I ever did an installation like this where I suspend my pieces was for my graduation thesis show. And I just had this idea of concepts or things that you're thinking about and that how um, uh, gravity isn't as much of a constraint, that ideas can float up and things could sort of travel through the room. I've heard it described that installation is treating the actual space as a sculpture that you're carving with your, uh, with your ideas. So I've always liked that. So. And then many of your pieces are um, uh, circular rounding yes. and they have um, these uh, smaller elements that are uh, again they kind of remind me of a little bit of amoeba or some kind of um, uh, microbial figures yes. what's going on there so this idea of duality of something extremely large something extremely tiny so microbes are extremely tiny um, but, um, you know, from looking at that, you can see how much it just extrapolates to, you know, in nature, even the largest thing, you know, they reference that as well. So I have things that are round, some things are jagged, so a lot of opposites uh, in shapes that I try to play with. You work here in the South? Yes. Are you from the South? No, originally I was born in Taiwan and I moved to the United States when I was 12 years old to California, actually. I grew up there. So, so you grew up on the West Coast? Yes, I did. What has living in the South how has living in the South affected your work? Hmm. You know, um, I would say predominantly the fact that I've got this uh, incredible job working at USM, uh, that has really freed me up to um, have an amazing facility for me to make the work that I want to. Um, I would say that in this particular area, having this amazing uh, 
museum here to have space for us, and people are really warm here. And I find it to be um, easy to network and to meet people, and people genuine, genuinely, I felt, want me to do well and want to help me. Just, I don't, you know, I don't know why, they just naturally want to help me out, and I found that to be really helpful. That's so important because um, often I think artists feel isolated and unsupported, so uh, to have that feeling is, is really uh, incredible. What do you think of George Orr's work? Oh, um, I mean, anybody, I always felt that anybody who does the wheel, you know, the powder wheel, if you ever find out about George Orr, he just becomes your hero. I don't know how, how he can not. He's so flamboyant and he's, you know, he puts himself out there and just the sheer work ethics and the genius, uh, just so much can go on and on about him. Um, and, and it was really surreal to me. And it was like, this is Biloxi. It's like, you know, like, oh, I'm here. George Ward's from here, you know? Because I grew up in the West Coast. And I, when am I ever going to end up in Mississippi? So, yeah, he's he's like this uh, legendary, you know, figure. So how, how would you describe his work? Well, I would say technically, supremely, um, just second to none, number one. Number two, very inventive, um, very organic, and uh, just very, very expressive, and just... Um, yeah, humorous, obviously. Just a hilarious guy. So, mm -hmm. where do you see your work going long term? What's what's uh, do you have a vision that goes beyond where you are now, or does it evolve just as you work? I think the second one. I it's just I think I just chip away. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think about where it's going. I think that's more exciting. You know, I think I will have a lot of anxiety if I already know where my work is going. And, it's almost like I've read at the end of the story, and then now I just got to play the part. I, I, I prefer that, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm still growing, still a lot I don't know, and that I feel like is the most exciting part. So. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. Taking a few minutes yeah. with me, and um, I will uh, hope to hear more, more about you over the years. Oh, thank you. Thank Appreciate you. you. So I reached out to see what we could come up with in the way of maybe some couple new interesting recipes for you to consider as you are in the last stages of preparation for tomorrow. So I know coming on a Wednesday, it may not be enough time for you to really um, scrounge. But if you are trying to look for some new ideas, I can't try to come up with a couple things that are not that hard to accomplish. And so we're going to um, uh, see what uh, we came up with for that and um, we're going to play an interview for you that will give you some new ideas. So folks, it is Thanksgiving so close out the show today. I want to offer you Jean-Aidman's special recipe for cranberry sauce that I really love. Now, I just want to admit uh, to, to full credit to Linda Banglis who's originally from Lake Charles, lives kind of all over the world, and, and she um, really helped me formulate this in the beginning. However, here's how it goes now. Um, first of all, get some pecans, you know, whole pecans. Um, roast them in a pan with just olive oil and maybe a little bit of salt and pepper. Don't let them burn. You have to watch it really carefully. Get them nice and brown. It brings out the flavor. But they burn really fast, so kind of get them into a nice big iron frying pan or just some kind of big frying pan 
and then be careful. I'm going to take them and put them on, um, like, paper towels just to spill some of the olive oil. I use olive oil. You can put a little bit of butter in, too. Of course, it's delicious, but I try to avoid that. All right, so you have them all ready, and you chop them up. Chop them up pretty fine. Not, you know, not um, like dust, but, you know, little pieces. Then take either satsuma, which is my favorite, or if you don't have satsuma anymore, oranges, and chop them up pretty fine. In the meantime, you put your cranberries into a big pot of water. Just follow the instructions on the bag of the cranberries and give the water and sugar in the proportions that they recommend. Let them boil until they kind of pop in and the water is kind of, you know, being boiled by them. Then add the oranges, the little pieces of orange, the little pieces of con, and, um, you know, whatever flavoring, I always add just a tiny bit of balsamic vinegar just to kind of give it a little punch. And then, um, you know, you can let it cook a little bit until the flavors all blend. And then I put it sit there, or you can even put it in the refrigerator. You do it today for tomorrow. And, oh, my God, I can't tell you. Everybody loves the cranberry sauce. So whether you make my cranberry sauce or not, I hope you have a fabulous Thanksgiving. And you know what? It's, it's kind of rough as this whole election season has been. Here's my basic position. We have to get together and move forward. And, um... They just created a little Twitter feed called Kids Tweets and Towers. Have a fun time for Thanksgiving. And don't get into any fights with anybody. See you next Cross-time conversations. See you next week. Okay, folks, that's it for now. Um, gosh, enjoy your Thanksgiving. And, you know, I know we've had a, a rough year and, and, a, and a, for many um disappointing outcome to our election year but um i, I go with um maya angelou's um counsel to us to um always think about coming back up and doing what we gotta do to, to go forward and, and push for the things that are important to us so um let's just keep on keeping on and this is jean nathan it's cross-time conversations enjoy your thanksgiving